You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. This is episode 12. I'm Greg Wilson, and I'm here with my co-host, Rob Nahoopi. Hey, Rob, how's it going? Greg, it's going well. Excited for this episode. I know uh, when we get to the episode, but I know we've actually got quite a bit to talk about today. Lots going on with the 340B program in this new year. And um, so, yeah, so just for everyone, we got a little bit of a heavier intro today. Um, So a little bit more content for you um, in this here second episode of 2023. Yeah, some, some ad hoc discussion around news and noteworthy items in the 340B space. I think the first thing we want to kind of revisit, and we talked about this on the last episode, is CMS published guidance in the end of uh, December around the use of JG and TB modifiers um, related to inflation rebate penalties coming up. So, um, you know, hospitals right now that are subject to OPPS continue to use their JG TB modifier as defined in the OPPS rules. But beginning in 2024, all 340B covered entities, including grantees, are going to be subject to the use of either a JG or a TB modifier to identify any drugs that are being billed separately um, for Medicare Part B billing. And we talked a little bit about the last time that you know maybe they're doing this in anticipation of a potential price survey in the future to um, uh, reinstitute some type of payment reduction in the future. But Rob, you had some thoughts and some discussion with others around why there may be other reasons why CMS is introducing these these modifiers for all 340B covered entities. What what are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm I'm with you. Uh, my initial thought was this. Gosh, this seems to be related to the to CMS wanting to do reintroduce a new survey and get and and do price reductions and so forth. And I was uh, fortunate enough um, over the last couple of weeks to be part of a, a pharmacy um, kind of colleague dinner. Uh, one of my old um, mentors, Tina, who I, I don't know if I mentioned on podcast before, but she's fantastic. Got a bunch of us pharmacists together, and like any nerdy pharmacist, we talked a little shop. Um, one of the one of the pharmacists there, um, I didn't get permission to say his name, but um, he's at the U of U. He does um, some pharmacy pricing and um, strategy, um, just really kind of studies that space from an outcomes research perspective. And as we talked about this, I brought up the fact: this, do you think that's what this is? Because um, he's been paying attention to you know the Inflation Reduction Act and the Medicare. Uh, reimbursements and everything else. And he gave me an alternative option and it could be both. We don't know, right? We don't know what, what the reason is. He says, well, it also could be just the need to collect the data, right? Which is why the grantees are impacted as, as um, CMS looks at non-federal AMP, that average manufacturer price, it affects two things that they're looking at. One is going to be the prices that they're going to pay for that maximum fair price for the drugs that that enter this space. So they need to know what the non-federal AMP is. And I'm not positive on this other one, um, and I wasn't clear which one of these two components of, of the IRA that the CMS could be reviewing. The other one is it could also be in part looking at the um, the inflation penalty, right? If they need to know which drugs are actually 340B, so they're not included in the the AMP for the inflation penalty risk if the if the manufacturers exceed CPIU, so they could be collecting it for that reason. So we think it, in addition to needing to know what drugs they are so they can do a cost study or survey, 
could also be because it's non-federal AMP issue, needing to know which drugs are 340B so they can exclude it from the calculation. So just an alternative thought. I actually wish I had asked him if I could put his name on the podcast and, and hopefully we can have him on in the future and just talk about government pricing and IRA and, and CMS and all the things he's got floating around in his mind. So great conversation at this dinner party. And I'm sure many of you do the same thing when you're not working, have dinner parties with your pharmacist friends and talk about more 340B <laughs> at pharmacy topics, or it's just some really nerdy people like myself. Yeah, I was going to say that 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 is not a topic that I typically <laughs> entertain when we're having dinner here at our house. But, you know, uh, you don't not give 340B much. presentations and stuff during dinner parties. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All right. Other stuff. Um, 340B in the news. So it's a couple of, uh, you know, either articles or podcasts where 340B has kind of been focused in the media. The first is New England Journal articles. We've got a perspective article that was published in the January 19th issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. I always, I always like to see 340B get the attention of the large peer-reviewed journals. I think it, it just broadens the, the, you know, the awareness of the 340B program, but some, you know, maybe, you know, different, I guess the, Rob, what are your thoughts on, on this particular perspective and, and maybe some of the, I don't want to say inaccuracies, but maybe some of the flawed methodology that was described in the New England article? Yeah, we had a great discussion about this, which is why we're bringing it up here. You know, I initially thought it was a peer, you know, it's New England Journal of Medicine. I'm assuming it's a peer-reviewed article. It's going to be factual. Um, it, it, As far as we can tell, and someone can kind of correct us if we're wrong here, but it appears that um, it's a perspective article. So in, in perspective articles may or may not be peer-reviewed, or if it was peer-reviewed, um, if perspective articles are peer-reviewed, it looks like somebody missed some things. And, you know, I don't know um, the people who wrote it are from the School of Medicine um, at Stanford University, which happens to be a 340B covered entity. So that does surprise us a little that it was, it felt like it was really more of a um, against 340B type of article. I, I, they may just be stating facts or, or yeah. whatnot. But a few things I noticed that, um, at least for me, is like, gosh, a peer review would have caught that if it, if it were peer review and, you know, maybe it wasn't as we just stated. But one is when they talked about the total savings in the program, they compared it to WAC. And I always caution people. I said, you, it's, it's really hard to say that, okay, 340's price was this much less than WAC, and this is the total savings to covered entities, because if the 340B program didn't exist, or if these covered entities weren't part of the 340B program, they would pay GPO, and they would have individual contracts or system contracts. And so that number's somewhere in between. So the actual net savings is much lower than the article state. So I think that was at least somewhat um, uh, intellectually inaccurate. I was going to yeah. say dishonest. I don't want to say dishonest. I don't think they intended it, but um, inaccurate to use WAC to 340B to show how um, how much savings occurs in the 340B program. So I think that was one. Yep. Another one is they state that um, 340B is the reason, and the way they state it almost seemed like there was a sole reason, but you know, open to interpretation if they just meant one of the reasons why manufacturers have raised or increased the cost of drugs was because they have to offset losses with the 340B program. And to me, that's a... So first of all, I like for all of you listening to think about, do we think manufacturers would not have raised prices if 340B didn't exist? And at least for me, the answer is no. I think manufacturers are going to raise the prices based on what the market can bear. So I yeah. tend to think that the prices would have increased anyway. And maybe that factors into how much they increase because they have to offset some of the costs with 340B or some of the decreased revenue, I'll say, with 340B. But yeah, there's the a penny, component. Any price rule and maybe the pen penalties that dr draw down the 340B price might be a deterrent. It probably is a deterrent, but you know, 340B you know, clearly can't be the the only rationale for a manufacturer choosing to raise its prices, right? Well, 
Greg, that that right there is probably the best argument. If yeah. if we're talking penny pricing penalty, up until CMS um, and the Inflation Reduction Act had their inflation penalty, my personal opinion was the penny pricing penalty is one of the things that was actually keeping drug prices in check. Now, granted, not great because drug prices continue increasing with lots of penny price drugs. But if you're a manufacturer, you do have to think about, am I really going to raise my, the price of my drug and get hit by the penny pricing penalty? Because that means I have to sell it at a penny per unit. That's that's financially disadvantageous. Yeah. And so we don't know how many manufacturers didn't increase the cost of their drug faster than inflation because they did not want to get hit with the penny pricing penalty. And that could be a large number. And the right, that's cost avoidance. We don't know how many would have. And now with CMS's IRA, Inflation Reduction Act, uh, pricing penalty as well for in, uh, increasing your price faster inflation, you have two reasons why, and we've talked about it before, why manufacturers may not increase their drugs as fast. So that was never mentioned in the article that 340B may have had a had a part to play in, in drug prices not increasing as fast as they could. So just just one more of that. I was like, hmm, that could have been mentioned. Yeah, and um, another another supposition in the article was around the rationale for CMS reducing reimbursement to 340B covered entities back in 2018. And the the, the suggestion is that it was to reduce um, Medicare Part B premiums, right? Exactly, exactly, right. There's, I think they said two things. They said um, the rationale for CMS was to lower co or the result was lowered co-pays for um, Medicare recipients and then also reduce Part also B, B premiums. Yeah. And arguably, on a, if you're on a percentage plan, that's true, right? If if the total cost is less, then then your percentage is less. So so agreed. Um, that was a positive benefit from from that process. But I'd, we'd have to argue against Part B premiums being reduced because CMS didn't have that ability to reduce premiums. They have something called budget neutrality, meaning that they they weren't able to take those savings and apply it to something else like premiums or uh, anything else. They had to keep it in that kind of same reimbursement basket. And so what CMS did, which I think most of us realize, I'm not sure why these um, these authors didn't, is that what CMS did is they took all those dollars and spread it out and just spread it out amongst all the hospitals based on their dish percentage. So for-profit hospitals got savings from the 340B program. They, and those savings didn't end up in reduced Part B premiums. It ended up in reducing or increasing reimbursement to uh, for-profit hospitals and, and, and well, all hospitals in general, including for-profit. So I think that was an error in the article as well. Um, so again, I'm not sure if peer reviewing would have caught that. Um, but at least we can do our own peer review here on the podcast in our unscripted <laughs> podcast. Well, if you're listening and you you haven't had the chance to to read it, remember New England Journal articles occasionally are are behind a a paywall. But you know there may be access to the article. The title of the perspective is Medicare overpayment for outpatient medication: a Supreme Court ruling in context. Um, again, in the January 19th issue of the New England Journal. So you know again, somewhat critical of the 340B program, but I think it's really important for 340B covered entity constituents to to you got, you got to read everything in the news, good or bad. So you know definitely. If you have an opportunity, check out the article and kind of take get, take your you know perspectives away from the perspective article that they put out in uh, New England. Another area where 340Bs hit the um, media is in podcasts. So outside of our podcast, the the Daily Podcast, which is sponsored by the New York Times, published a podcast episode just just this week. So just yesterday, we're recording this at the end of January. So last week of January. Um, the the Daily is the New York Times 
podcast, and they recapped a series of articles that they've published in the New York Times over the last few months, um, described as profits over patients. I think we talked about one of the articles that described uh, Bon Secours, uh, Richmond Community Hospital, and some you know concerns around how 340B program was implemented uh, at that um, particular covered entity. Rob, I know you said you just listened to the podcast. What was your take from the daily podcast on profits over patients? Yeah, definitely more of a um, just a regurgitation of of that article, and then um, you know an article um, that speaks about a specific patient instance around um, you know a billing uh, with another health system, and um, it felt like they they, they just repeated it. And then it, um, I think you used a good word when we discussed it, sensationalized. You know, but I know people have to do that because it, it makes listening more fun or. Whatever, but it did feel over dram dramatized. Is that the right word? Um, <laughs> and uh, where you know they just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they did that. I'm like, you know, what they didn't focus on is both these health systems do a lot of good. They both have a lot of charity care, especially the one where they had the billing issue. Um, I thought the response from the leadership from the health system was fantastic, and they they talked about that they responded, but then they even with the health system, you know, making sure this lady got got reimbursed, and they actually reimbursed hundreds of other patients who, you know, definitely met charity care requirements, but were still um, being asked to pay for part of their bill. They went back and resolved that. So I'm thinking, you know, this health system um, did a fantastic job of recovering its providence. I'll just put it out there since it's publicly available. I really think providence stepped up to the plate on this one. And I don't think they were giving enough credit for it. Um, and then on top of that, the end, even after providence fixed everything, paid, you know, paid this patient back for anything she paid. So she really got almost free care. I'm not sure all the details, so I don't want to say she did, but but it seems like they covered quite a bit of the cost and wrote a lot off. Um, you know, they they kind of ended with, oh, but she's still not comfortable. When if they do it again, I'm like, really? After all this, I mean, I guess she I, she's entitled to feel the way she does. I don't want to take that away from her, but I think Providence stepped up to the plate, and I I wouldn't be afraid to go back. I mean, that that's that's what a good health system does is realize, hey, if there was an error, let's fix it. Because you're right, we want we want to take care of our patients and community, and they did that. And I just didn't feel like they got enough credit in this. Uh, podcast yeah. or the 340B program at a whole for all the good that it does. Um, right. So a little one-sided still. Yeah. Not not a lot of discussion in that podcast episode around the merits of the 340B program and kind of restating, you, you know, some some very loose kind of intent of what the 340B program is is meant for. But, but you know, I, probably not a, a fair, you know, amount of time given to explaining the, the value of the 340B program for a lot of providers out there that, you know, could potentially close their doors or have to, you know, cut back services to patients in the absence of being able to access the 340B program. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Some other housekeeping items. So we're, we're entering the month of February. That means it's annual recertification time for uh, Indian Health and grantee covered entities, um, family planning clinics, STD clinics, and TB clinics. Um, they're not included in this round of recertification. Based on previous years, we can expect those 340B covered entities to go through recertification later in the spring, so May, June time period of this year. But um, open recertification window from January 30th through February 27th for the Indian Health and grantee covered entities. Um, covered entities, you know, that are up for recertification now, they've already begun to receive notification via email to your authorizing official and your primary contact. Um, HRSA put on a webinar at the end of January sharing a couple of the tidbits around recertification this year for, for these covered entities. Health centers that are requesting changes to OPACE during recertification, those changes need to be reflected in the EHB or the electronic handbook um, before OPA will approve them. So if you're going to 
make any changes to your OPA listing of your covered entity. Any of those changes already need to be in place on the EHB. Ryan White covered entities that are going through recertification, you're gonna have to enter your notice of funding opportunity or NOFO number and the date range of the funding um, during recertification. Another thing to remember is that AOs and PCs, your authorizing officials in your primary context, you're gonna continue to receive daily emails until recertification is complete. So I know that always created a little bit of consternation at the health system I used to work at where you know, you're gonna get pinged by OPA every day through the recertification period until you go through and complete the recertification process. So you wanna make sure that if you're working with your 340B staff member and um, you're not the AO and the PC, you wanna let them know, hey, you're gonna start seeing communications regularly from, um, from OPA until we complete uh, recertification. And another thing to be aware of, and I think sometimes this also causes a little bit of um, heartburn is that any changes that you make in OPACE during the recertification are only gonna be viewable to you after OPA approves the recertification. Some folks will go in, they'll make a bunch of changes. Um, OPA is still not yet completed their approval process of your recertification, but you can't see all of those changes that you had requested in OPACE and people wonder if they've done something incorrectly. You won't see any of those changes that you've made during recertification until after OPA gives their, their stamp of approval. I think I got everything, right, Rob? Any other tidbits from your perspective with regard to recertification? No, that was very thorough and complete, my friend. <laughs> well, you know, grantees is gonna be a big topic for us on the podcast this month. We're, we've given you a little bit of a tidbit on uh, recertification, but at the end of February, we're gonna have an episode completely dedicated to our grantee covered entities. We've got a team of subject matter experts at SpendMend focus, focusing on uh, auditing and supporting um, grantee covered entities. We're gonna bring them onto the podcast. Um, got a lot of questions to ask them around observations that they've had from recent, recent audit experiences with these clinics, as well as some discussion around the different best practices that we recommend our grantee covered entities implement. So um, if you're out there and you've, you're working with a, a grantee or if you have interest and what you know are the the hot topics for 340b grantee covered entities you know look out for our episode late in february with some of the uh the spendmen folks yeah I'm, I'm excited for that um i know sometimes you know there's a lot more it seems to be a lot more things going on with hospitals and reimbursement and those types of things but grantees are such a significant and, and uh integral and critical part of our healthcare delivery especially when you talk about indigent and underserved populations so yeah. Super, super excited to to have a deep dive discussion with with grantee experts and really kind of focus on some of the issues on the grantee space and and get a, give a, give a little bit more airtime to our grantees. Yeah, absolutely, and they're and they're different and unique too. So you know, not, it's you know, very specific issues to that that population of 340B experts. So really important for us to to make sure we bring in folks that are working with those types of covered entities every day. So that'll be a good episode to listen to at the end of February. Also, little teaser for an, our, our next episode. So episode 13, we're going to bring back Riley Proats. We had him uh, on the podcast uh, earlier in 2022 and read uh, a very interesting bio that was put together from Tom from our marketing department. R Riley said he'd never be back on the podcast after that, but we convinced him to to join us again. He's you know our in-house resident expert on 340B ESP, contract pharmacy, Manufacturer restrictions are still in play. We've got 
I think it's 19 manufacturers now that have implemented restrictions. And those restrictions are impacting both hospital covered entities and grantees. Um, there's different approaches that the manufacturers and 340B ESP have taken to restrict access to 340B price drugs on the contract pharmacy side from designating single contract pharmacies if you don't have an in-house retail pharmacy or petitioning for an entity-owned contract pharmacy exemption or uploading claims data. Um, lots of complicated things to consider with regard to um, trying to uh, capture that uh, 340B savings on the contract pharmacy side. It's really confusing process. It's very labor intensive. We're getting lots of questions from clients around how to navigate this whole process. And Riley's, you know, our best point of contact to, to really kind of clear the air, let everybody understand kind of where we're at with these different issues and talk a little bit about how we've been supporting covered entities to, to, to make the process work for them. Yeah, and I'll say, and normally we, we you know we save um, any any uh, services for for our little ad that we put in between uh, you know this intro and the podcast, but um, episode or interview episode. Uh, but I will say that Riley just started off helping covered entities, and eventually they're like, "Can you just do this for us?" And so Riley and his team does provide a service. So if you're out there going, the ESP is killing me right now, I could use some just guidance or even actual support. Let us know. We can get you set up with Riley on a call and he can kind of share his knowledge and expertise. And and if you're at the point like, you know, I don't have the resources to do what you're saying, um, let us know. Riley can kind of talk about how he might be able to help there as well. So small plug there if you're struggling with the ESP program and trying to get all your savings back. And it's just it's just daunting and taking too much time. Yeah, there, there are a few folks out there that are, you know, they've recently implemented services and you may, may have, you know, people may have received, you know, contact from from some of those vendors, but it's a really complicated process. And there's, I think, a lot of misinformation and kind of confusing perspectives around the, the actual kind of mechanics of working with 340B ESP. So really happy to have Riley on and kind of help us understand the, the, the true day-to-day -day challenges that covered entities are going through with the, um, the whole manufacturer restrictions. I think it's time to, to you know, move on to the topic of hand today. We're going to be uh, discussing pharmacy benefit strategy for 340B covered entities. Rob, give us a little um, intro to what we're going to talk about on the other side of the break. Yeah, so this is going to be different. Um, you know, what, one of the things we did in 2022, as, as we heard from a lot of covered entities and health systems coming out of um, COVID, is there's a lot of financial um devastation, for lack of a better word, where people are running in the red where they never had before. It's been a long time. And one thing we looked at as well, a lot of people are really busy. Instead of trying to do more and more in the 340 space, what can we do? What can we identify um, for services out there that can help health systems, you know, decrease costs or increase savings, however you want to look at it. One of those things that we, we you know, being at conferences, had the opportunity to meet with um, Rx Benefits a couple of times and just trying to understand what they did as a business. And you know, they're a pharmacy benefit optimizer is what they are. So they're not a PBM, they're a PBO. And what they do is they look at your employed healthcare pharmacy benefit and say, how can we improve that? Even looking at, you know, how 340B interfaces with your health system and leverage that to decrease your empl employed pharmacy drug cost benefits. So it's your employees and, and, and dependents. And didn't realize how sometimes depending on how your benefit's set up, it may not be optimized for maximum savings or even looking at 340B and how you would how would you utilize that? And and although we're going to focus on the that kind of PBM and and those benefits of going with um, kind of a combo that uses someone who actually specifically does that optimization of your pharmacy benefit, um, we're going to talk about that today. We have two people on. We have um, we have Thatcher Sloan, who is the VP Strategic Markets and Advisory Services um, uh, Vice President for RX Benefits, and I, I've 
I've got to know him over this process and learning more about Rx Benefits, but he's been with Rx Benefits previously, um, Confidio, for now almost six years. Uh, before that, he was with Optimity Advisors for five, and before that, almost 10 years with ChainDrugStore.net. So lots of background in the pharmacy supply chain and pharmacy benefit space. Real great knowledge base. Excited to have him. Short bio on him. Um, so he's been a results-oriented executive with over 15 years of experience in the healthcare industry. He has a proven track record of building high-performance, results-driven teams that deliver large-scale programs and implementations. Um, and again, he's he's worked um, for the variety of companies I mentioned, and I'm excited to to learn more from him on on the other side of the of the break. So excited for Thatcher. The other person we have on, I've actually known for a, a, a quite a bit longer, uh, Victoria Ferris. Um, she brings over 20 years of healthcare and PBM experience um, prior to joining. So she's with OptumRx. So that's our other business or that we have on the podcast today. So Rx Benefits, who's the PBO, and then OptumRx, who is the PBM. That's uh, that we that's it's a three-way partnership with with us to try and deliver this service to um, health systems. And super excited for Optum because in the news recently, Optum also, and I think maybe we talked about on the podcast, but Optum did um, kind of lower some of their rates for covered entities. Um, so that was a positive. I, I feel Optum's actually becoming a very good player and a good partner in the 340B space. So excited to speak more with her. But she's got 20 years of healthcare and PBM experience. Um, and prior to joining Optum in 2021, she was the senior vice president of sales. Um, at Overture Health, a population healthcare management company. Um, and she, prior to that, she spent 10 years at American Healthcare. It's a, that was a mid-market PBM that if you remember that name and you've been in the program a while, they are now Maxor. Uh, Maxor purchased American Healthcare. But before that, American Healthcare was a TPA in the contract pharmacy space. They had some really good low rates. They really tried to make it cost effective. And I remember as a pharmacy director, that's when I met Victoria. She was um, she was on that American healthcare side. She was, she was they were one of the first few um, TPAs that were doing contract pharmacy. Um, like I said, they had a nice flat fee model where a lot of people were doing percentage models and I really liked the model they had. And so my first contract pharmacy setup was with uh, American healthcare in Victoria. Um, and so over the years we've kept in touch and she kind of brought this opportunity to us. Say, here's, a, here's a way you can help your health system save money. And that's what we're gonna talk about on their side. So excited to hear from both Thatcher Sloan and Victoria Ferris. Excellent. All right, well, I'm going to go warm up my coffee. We'll take a quick break. And on the other side, we'll have Victoria and Thatcher with us. And we'll talk a little bit about pharmacy benefit optimization in the 340B world. Fantastic. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendmen Pharmacy. As a pharmacy industry professional, you know 340B program participation includes complex regulatory and audit requirements that must be managed carefully and accurately. If HRSA identifies non-compliance issues, costly and corrective actions are often required, and 340B programming eligibility may be at risk. Visit spendmen.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how Spendman Pharmacy can help you ensure 340B compliance while driving significant savings. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Rob and myself, we're here with uh, Victoria and Thatcher. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for Thank having you. us. Good to be here. Yeah, so exciting topic today, talking about pharmacy benefit optimization for 340B covered entities, sometimes a, an underappreciated opportunity in the 340B space. Rob, I'm gonna start with you. When we're thinking about different healthcare providers out there that should be looking at their 340B footprint in the context of developing a pharmacy benefit strategy, who, who should be thinking about, about this, this topic? 
Yeah, great question. Um, because it's not for everybody, right? If you're a really large health system and, and you have your own um, pharmacy benefit plan um, and you're kind of doing things yourself, um, might not be the best fit. But you, you think it really about those medium to large health systems, definitely self-insured where you're contracting, contracting out that PBM benefit. Sometimes you're just kind of going with whatever PBM benefit your um, your program, your health plan has. And, and that's where I think there's there's a big opportunity especially looking at 340B and, and how do you um, utilize 340B in a more effective and efficient manner. And, and that's where, you know, that's where I'm excited to have um, Thatcher and Victoria on Thatcher's from um, Rx Benefits. They're a PBM optimizer. And, and I think for part of this answer, Thatcher, um, any additional thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a couple different things is one is, you know, if, if you think you may have, like we do come across hospitals and health systems that actually are, you know, uh, can use utilize the 340B program, uh, but haven't accessed it to date. So I think just checking to make sure to see if you do kind of qualify for the program. You know, the other thing is we come across a lot of health systems as well that do know that they're, you know, that they can utilize the 340B program, but really aren't maximizing it across their benefit. And how do they look at it across, you know, not just looking, you know, looking overall at what the pharmacy is dispensing, but also how are they using it for their employee plan? And, and making sure that they're getting those 340B pricing for their employee plan because it can lead to, you know, significant cost savings for the plan and also kind of maximize the, the value of, the, of that in-house pharmacy. Yeah, so that, that, that concept of, you know, engaging 340B subject matter experts in your, um, in your hospital or in your organization in the, the formulary strategy is really important. I know, Rob, we've, we've talked about this before particularly with like buy and build drugs, the drugs that the hospitals are buying, you really want your 340B team involved in the decision-making process when it comes to selecting a drug that you're going to use in the hospital. That concept really extends out to, you know, the managed care formulary, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and one reason we're even having this um, this podcast is because we, we've had questions around this. And in, in general, I would say that pharmacy benefit for your self-insured plan isn't within the 340B or pharmacy space. It's typically with HR, but it is an opportunity that, that people just because of that segregation of duties within a health system, we don't see as often. And so um, I, I think it's a great opportunity for the team to look at and, and partner with your HR department and say, hey, what are we doing today? Are we leveraging 340B? But, um, but, you know, it really also depends on how you're set up. And, and I think part of this discussion we're going to have today is about even if you're set up in a way that, that doesn't really allow you to really leverage 340B in your employee um, health plan, there are things you can do to get there. Um, so, you know, as you think about your plan, the, you know, the best thing is if you already have um, a lot of qualified uh, provider-based clinics or um, hospital outpatient department um, clinics, there's a good chance a lot of your employees and depends are already using those services. So those three, those prescriptions do qualify. So it's really about, um, you know, making sure your PBM, whoever you use is, is helping drive patients to your pharmacies. Now, if everyone remembers, we do have to allow for patient choice. <laughs> so we can't just say, Hey, you have to use this pharmacy, but you know, through a PBM benefit, you, there are, you know, co-pays and things you can do uh, to try and um, encourage people to stay within network um, where you're going to receive some of those savings and reduce some of that cost that you have for your employees and dependents. Um, and if not, then if, so if you don't have those clinics, there are things that we've seen quite a few health systems utilize over time. And that one good example is pharmacotherapy clinics, right? Those are kind of our genesis of that is really those diabetes clinics we first had. They kind of drifted into diabetes clinics and some other, you know, hep C clinics. But really, it's a great model, especially as we have more and more states adding pharmacist practitioners, that we can do two things. We can add 
enhance clinical services to improve patient care, right? I still think that's first and foremost by having pharmacists involved more heavily in some of these higher cost, higher acuity patients. How do we leverage that clinical pharmacist to, to improve outcomes by looking at, you know, is it the right drug? Is it the right dose? Is it, um, you know, is it even covered by insurance? All these things. And then on top of that, are they getting the right, you know, labs and, and follow up and checkup? So I, we really think a pharmacotherapy clinic can add to the clinical outcomes of the patient at the same time that creates, if, if that pharmacotherapy clinic's created as a provider-based department or a hospital outpatient department, then you, then it can, then those prescriptions now qualify for 340B, and now you can decrease the cost as well and cover the cost of that pharmacist and that additional intervention. Um, so really like that idea. I don't know if um, Thatcher or Victoria had other thoughts as well around that. Yeah, the, I mean, the one thing I would, I would add that kind of go back to some of the, like the earlier comments that you made is, you know, making sure that you're utilizing and maximizing that 340B program. How are you tying that into HR? But also, you know, pulling forward really the financial value of this. Because a lot of times we'll go in and, and talk to a client or talk to a, you know, a prospective client and HR doesn't understand the financial value that the 340B program can bring. And when you get up into like the finance and CFO level, they don't really, they don't see it from, they certainly understand like the discounted price, but when you look at kind of the discounted price and you look at the reimbursement that's coming into the pharmacy and you look at the rebates that are coming in, you know, or not coming in because you're utilizing 340B, there's a lot of complexity around that. And a lot of times there's a struggle to actually quantify that financial value to go up to, you know, the CFO or the head of HR to say, here's really the benefits of kind of maximizing this program, especially for, for, the, uh, for the employee plan where there's a ton of benefit and ton of financial savings and really having the mechanisms in there so you can effectively tell that story and kind of promote that program and the value that that would bring to the hospital. Yeah, there's really lots of variables in the, the formula for calculating the value. So it takes maybe a little more sophisticated analysis than the typical just, you know, delta between your usual purchase price if you weren't 340B eligible versus the 340B price. Lots of other factors to, to account for. I, I agree. And it's about helping everyone who makes the decision about their benefit plan understand that hospitals and health centers, um, health systems, they all have unique resources that they need to ensure that they're leveraging. Yeah, great point. Rob, you know, we, we're, we're always talking about 340B compliance. So when we're introducing pharmacy benefit model that intersects with the 340B program, and maybe we're talking about employee prescriptions now potentially qualifying. What, what are the compliance risks that a covered entity would need to worry about if they're going to extend use of 340B drugs into this area? Yeah. And, you know, in a lot of cases, we're going to be talking about dish hospitals um, or bigger hospitals. And so one, th uh, there's a couple of things I always think about employees independent. So one is just that 340B patient definition. Uh, we know, you know, in some previous podcasts, we've talked about that expansion of that definition, what that looks like, but, but it's really making sure that what, however you're qualifying your employee independent prescriptions, that is in line with your 340B patient definition. And of course, we know that that's been changing over time. It gets looser, it could tighten up. So just making sure you're always in line with however you're defining it and that, that, you know, you, you're working with, you know, legal and compliance and, and hopefully external, um, um, consultants as well to make sure that your 340B patient definition is in line with, you know, HRSA auditing standards and, and expectations and, and more specifically the 340B statute. So that's one. And especially as, you know, there are still some from many, many years ago, there was some, you know, there's, there's some discussion about do all patients, do all employees and dependents qualify by virtue of being employees and dependents of a health system? And, yeah. you know, over time, HRSA has kind of clarified and said, well, probably not. You still need to meet your, meet your patient definition. So we, 
we do think there's a little bit of risk there. And then secondarily, there's there's still a lot of hospitals doing um, GPO or what we call Nonprofit Institution Act plans. That's where you can use your acute GPO contract pricing for um, own use. I think more commonly it's referred to own use. And so you just have to be careful with own use if you're a 340B dish hospital, because now you're talking about GPO in an outpatient setting. So that has to be done correctly, possibly with a non-covered um, entity pharmacy, maybe a health system pharmacy that's um, offsite and, and uh, not subject to the GPO prohibition. So just a couple of compliance things to think about as you start driving more of your employees' independence to your pharmacies or contract pharmacy networks. Great, great thoughts. Um, Victoria, just based on from your experience working at OptumRx, um, what would encourage a, a group to move um, to you guys for PBM services for a program like this kind of intersecting with the 340B covered entities program operations? Sure. So first of all, you know, OptumRx is one of the largest PBMs in the country. So we have significant buying power and resources behind um, our organization, and we pass that to our clients. So even if they did nothing different but move to um, OptumRx for a PBM, they're going to see savings. But the fact that um, our collaboration with Rx Benefits and you know OptumRx, we have the flexibility to allow the covered entities to utilize their own resources. Um, despite what many people might think that a big PBM might not be flexible, that is you know, really not true with OptumRx. We can be as hands-on or as hands-off as the organization would like us to be, meaning we can, we can help them and encourage them to drive their members to fill at their own pharmacies, including specialty meds. And we can provide just the wrap network for drugs that they don't have access to or anything that might not be filled at their in-house pharmacies or dispensaries. Um, we also um, have unique resources in um, you know, clinical programs um, and other um, types of offerings within Optum as an enterprise, like you know, discount cards and, and other types of resources that are available because of our organizational buying power. Yeah, you mentioned the, the discount charge uh, cards. You know, transparency in 340B savings has been a, a hot topic in the news. We've a couple of articles, you know, earlier this year, earlier last year, I guess, in the, the New York Times and more recently in the Wall Street Journal, you know, lots of, you know, uh, chatter about we need to understand better around how covered entities are using 340B savings. What, what are the capabilities that, that you guys have to help covered entities establish charity care programs to make sure that there's a mechanism for them to pass on savings to those patients in need? So when you look at employees independence, you know, that is that's separate from the charity programs, as you just kind of indicated. And with charity programs, we can help operationalize that process so that they can have reporting on it. For example, they can we can put together um, issue cards um, or have dynamic eligibility where they can add members. Some, you know, some of the charity pro care patients might come and go at, you know, frequent more frequently, obviously, than a, an employee might. So we can have dynamic eligibility where they can add and remove eligible um, charity patients from the system. And then the claims can adjudicate through our PBM operations. So it makes it easy. Um, and less of a manual process. 
And then because it would adjudicate through our system, we can do robust reporting on it that makes it easy for them to slice and dice data and you know, present it to you know, any third party that may need to see it um, you know, for audits or what have you, so that they can be very transparent on the fact that they're spending X amount of dollars on charity programs. And likewise, we can also limit what's covered to, you know, if they only want to cover um, certain drugs, you know, maybe it's just diabetes drugs or anything that's kind of a life or death situation, um, or they might want to expand it to anything on a 340B um, discount drug list, or maybe even expand it beyond um, 340B um, purchased drugs. So we can help do that by managing formularies. Uh, managing the operational process and then and being able to provide robust reporting on it. And just, you know, thinking on the different kind of scope of where these programs might work. I mean, this, this could potentially work with a covered entity's own community employers, correct? Not just the, you know, employees at the organization themselves. Tell me a little bit about how this might work with, you know, a network of community employers in a covered entities region. Sure. So, you know, there's a number of health systems that want to expand um, their community footprint or their outpatient, um, you know, market share. And so they can private label this and work with local um, employers and their benefits consultants and drive business to their own facilities that would create that outpatient relationship with those covered entities, or sorry, with the employer groups. And then they would be able to bring more 340B savings, obviously, because of it. And that would allow them to pass along some of those savings to those employer groups, whether it's, um, you know, reduced rates that are more robust because they're taking into consideration the 340B savings that they would be um, earning as a result, um, or they might have some kind of um, other ways to discount and share those savings with their community employers. Victoria, if I can just add on to that, I mean, that's a that's a big area of focus that I know that we're looking at together, you know, with the OptiMarx benefits combination of how do we, you know, leverage hospitals and their assets and the 340B program to really work effectively in their community and provide, you know, health system, like you said, like white labeled or, you know, plans that they can go out and sell to local businesses and municipalities that will help the local, you know, employers get them more connected to the community, connected to the, you know, the health system, the health system, you know, gains because they're driving more scripts through that pharmacy, they're driving more scripts, you know, through 340B, but also driving more traffic through their doors. So I think there's really a huge opportunity here once, you know, a, health, a hospital or health system is up and running and they have you know, their benefit in place and, and they're utilizing the 340B program, there's a lot of opportunities to expand that out in the local community, which is a big part of the 340B and the pharmacy, but will also help the overall health system with how they're driving you know, traffic through their doors. I, I agree. And you know, obviously, when they go to a local employer and work with those local consultants, their first question is going to be, well, how much are you saving and how is this working for your own employees? So they have to be their own first customer. But once they establish that, then they can take it out to their community and help reduce cost of health care for their own you know, community. And that's something that's important to them. And like you said, staying very connected and you know, being an asset to the community in that way. 
Thatcher, I, I got a question for you. We were talking a little bit about this earlier. You know, one one of the um, another kind of hot topic or an area of concern that that some of the folks that we work with um, are troubled by is you know trends with regard to rebate clawbacks from the pharmacies that are working in the 340B space. And any thoughts or insights from from your perspective on in what we're seeing with rebate clawbacks these days? We're seeing a lot of this, and we're seeing an increasing amount where. Pharma is coming in and clawing back rebates from any hospital or health system that operates a 340B program and really kind of focusing on those claims that are going through that pharmacy, whether they're 340B or not. So if we look at some of the issues is when a pharmacy dispenses a claim, sometimes they know if it's 340B or not. A lot of times they don't. So the claim is going out the door and they don't know if, if it's 340B or not. And then that rebate gets submitted off to the, to the manufacturer through the PBM. And so what the, what the manufacturers are doing is they're looking across this and saying, are these pharmacies double dipping where they're accessing the 340B program and also taking a rebate on it? And just to be clear, so on the, in the commercial space, like accessing the 340B program and taking a rebate is not illegal, but a lot of the contracts that PBMs have with pharma prohibit this. So when you go into a pharmacy and you talk about double dipping, a lot of times they're think, they think you're talking about Medicaid where you're not able to do that, where 340B, and just kind of explaining to them that this is the commercial component. The other area where we see pharma getting data from is they're taking data or they're buying data out of the drug wholesalers that look at the replenishment rate into that pharmacy. So they know how many, they know the replenishment rate of 340B going in. And what they're trying to do is say, if this went at 340B, we don't also want to pay a rebate. And we're seeing a lot of overreach. So we're seeing the clawback from pharma kind of look at saying, hey, we're not going to pay any rebates on any claims going out through this pharmacy, or they're, they're uh, clawing back more than just the 340B because they don't want to overpay. Um, one of the areas that we're looking at, and it's actually a program that, we're, that Optum and us work very closely on, is we're investing in a tool that would actually allow us to go through and, and requalify the claims as 340B. So we would know what actually qualified as 340B and what didn't. And then once we have that data, work with Optum to say, hey, these 340B claims, you know, according to the contract and stuff, they're not rebate eligible, but these other claims were rebate eligible. And let's take this data and go back to pharma and say, here's the data that actually supports that you should be paying rebates on these claims. And that's a huge investment that we're making in a program that we're working on with Optum to make sure that that pharmacy is maximizing its value. And when the claim does go 340B, it's not, you know, rebate eligible, but when it's not, we want to make sure that they're receiving the full financial value and getting that rebate, you know, to, pride, to, to buy down the price, price of the drug. It's an area too, like even if you just look outside of hospitals, it's also affecting the commercial client. So you have employers and things like that that may utilize a health system and have some claims. We're actually seeing clawbacks go into that commercial market too, uh, commercial meaning not non-hospital, just looking at kind of an employer. That's something we haven't historically seen that we've seen a kind of crop up in the last year or two. So, so pharma is really kind of, you know, cracking down on this, looking at how they're making sure that they're not, you know, paying rebates on 340B claims. I think overall, we're kind of seeing what we would consider an overreach in this space. And we're investing heavily in tools and technology to make sure that we can go back to pharma and, and get rebates for these, you know, hospitals and health systems that, that, they, that are rightfully theirs. Yeah, we just want to make sure that um, every you know, the eligible um, prescriptions get the rebates that they are eligible for and that nobody's taking more or less than they're entitled to. 
and we want we want to make sure that it's just a more accurate process because up until now and even you know as we're working through this there is no there hasn't been a great level of um an accurate and efficient way of you know saying this is a 340b drug this is not a 340b drug for purposes of rebates so i mean it, it's accurate but it's getting all the data together and making it um efficient that i guess that's the better term is making it efficient and so we're hoping that we can get this done so that everybody can you know get the rebates or get the 340b price yeah, and I appreciate the, the clarification of the, the terminology too, because especially when the contract pharmacy restrictions were implemented by manufacturers back in 2020 now, there was a lot of confusion around, you know, the 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 notion that these, you know, rebates paid on 340B drugs were subject to, you know, duplicate discount um, violations. And, and Thatcher, you're right. It were really, it's it's stacked rebates or stacked dis discounts and, and not the duplicate discounts that 340B covered entities have a statutory requirement to uh to avoid or prevent. So I appreciate kind of clarifying the the language we use around, you know, duplicate discount versus a, maybe a, a stacked discount for some of these clawbacks. Of course. Okay. Hey, I th I think that's a great question. Clawbacks are one, I, or that response and, and, and uh, back and forth, because clawbacks are something that we do hear a lot about. I, I love I love how you guys get into it and look to make sure that they're accurate and what they're supposed to be, because that's always been a big concern. Um, that, that we get from covered entities, especially contract pharmacies and the retail pharmacy side. Now, um, if it's okay, I, I, I was, um, you know, one thing that, um, that, that we get from clients a lot um, also is just, you know, PBM. And to be fair, PBMs have had, um, have had a bad run in the news media, but I did want to share, and Victoria, I don't know if you've seen this, but one of our friends um, and clients, Amanda Plowman, uh, and I'm going to read this. I'm saying her name only because she posted it on LinkedIn, so I'm not you know, giving away anything that's not public information already. She's at Fairbanks Memorial up in Alaska, which I visited. I visited him up there. Um, and she was also the person at the 340B Summer Conference um, last year that came the farthest uh, coming from Fairbanks. So really, really enjoy Amanda when she can make it down to the conferences. But she said um, in her LinkedIn post, is anyone talking about how Optum is lowering their fees that covered entities pay? They're doing this so we can stretch scarce dollars even farther. Welcome to 340B in 2023, one win so far. Thank you Optum for caring about the patient. So I just wanna share, cause I don't know if uh, Victoria, you saw that. And I thought she's saying that no one's talking about it. So I thought, hey, I can talk about it right here. Oh, well, I did not see that, but thank you for sharing that. And, you know, it's nice to see that, um, client obsessed um, that's one of our strategic values at OptumRx that it's it's happening and that our clients are feeling that too and you know like I said people have a misconception that all PBMs are um, the bad guys that they're inflexible but that's certainly not the case with OptumRx we that's why we're collaborating with RX benefits so that we can have a real um, channel for hospitals um, that is consistent and, like I said, utilizing their resources and that they can all maximize the benefits that they that they have that they're entitled to. And one of those things is just being flexible. Like, for example, we don't require anyone to use a specific 340B administrator. We're very agnostic in that way. I know some other PBMs own their own administrator, so they require them, or some pharmacies own their own administrators and they require use of them. And so we don't wanna try and tell the hospitals how to 
run the other segments of their business. We just want to make sure that um, that we're as hands-on or as hands-off as they want us to be. Same with our clinical programs. Um, we certainly have a whole um, array of clinical programs to help um, you know, have better patient outcomes and reduce costs. And if the hospital has their own clinical resources that they would like to utilize in lieu of our clinicians, we also support that as well, because that will also help create that patient relationship with theirs, those employees. So again, as hands-off or as hands-on as they would like us to be, because we want to be very flexible. I appreciate that. And, you know, and, and for our audience, um, you know, we definitely wanted to, the, this area, this PBM side um, and health benefit side isn't something that um, uh, uh, we at Spenman Pharmacy have um, a deep expertise in. You know, it's something that we touch because of 340B, but uh, just excited to be able to bring two experts in the field from two companies I respect um, and what they're doing um, to the table. And um, then you guys kind of hear from them and learn in how, how you can possibly help your health systems um, in this space. So appreciate both of you being on. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, so Rob, if somebody's listening and they're interested in, you know, maybe they've been thinking about developing some type of employee benefit solution, and but they they, they need some guidance. What, how, how do how do they engage us to uh, help them think through all the the key steps? Yeah, I'd say first steps, reach reach out to, especially if you're a current client, reach out to us, um, or if you're just interested, um, you know, you can reach out to us directly. Um, we have our uh, we have our new email for Unscripted, if you want to reach out to that. Um, it's at 340bunscripted at spendmen.com. Uh, or, or you can even more simply just reach out to us at contact at uh, spendmen.com. Let us know. We'll get, uh, Jake and I will get something set up. We'll get um, both Victoria and Thatcher, or uh, Thatcher actually has one of his team members, Craig, um, that will join. And we can just talk shop and see if it might be an opportunity for you. Or Jake and I can just speak with you and see if there's something we do to help your current program as is. So um, if there's any interest, I say the call to action, just reach out and let's have this initial discussion and talk about it, see what we can do to help. All right. Well, Victoria Thatcher, thank you again for, for joining us. Rob, always nice uh, chatting with you. And I think that wraps up our discussion this week. So again, thanks everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 